every time a baby chimp is captured, an average of 10 chimps die trying to protect that baby. You know, they'll, they'll fight for their life. Can you say that again real quick? That deserves a repeat. Every time a baby chimp is stripped from the wild, an average of 10 chimpanzees are killed. The parents, the siblings, the aunties, uncles, grandparents. Welcome to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, a.k.a. Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our conservation tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Evan Anton, small, exotic, and wildlife veterinarian. And also something that is pretty unique is he was voted the world's sexiest vet in 2014, 2016, and 2017, I believe. So, Evan, my brother, you're smiling. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Blaine. No worries. All right. I imagine you're a very busy man, so I appreciate you taking the time to come on this small but growing podcast. Um, I'm pretty keen to dive into some juicy questions, but before we do that, can you please expand a little more on who you are, who is Evan Anton, and what do you do? Yeah. So, I mean, like, like you said, I do small animal exotic and wildlife work. I practice at a veterinary hospital in Thousand Oaks, California, and I see you know a lot of dogs and cats. I see a lot of exotic pets. I see, um, you know, wildlife that's brought in sometimes by wildlife rescues or by patron, you know, just good Samaritans and just, you know, find a rescued bird or, you know, they want to rescue a possum or a raccoon or what have you. You know, I, I've, I've, uh, I love traveling. I love seeing wildlife in the wild. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to become a vet because I, you know, I, wa I wanted to work with animals, of course. But, uh, you know, I wanted to kind of give back to the wildlife I've appreciated so much over the years, you know, and, and be able to help them as well. And that's also why I think when my my personal career profession, you know, I have a I try to incorporate a big component in wildlife conservation. And so that can be, you know, as simple as, you know, helping individual animals or working with conservationists doing bigger projects and thinking bigger picture, which I think that is the, the one of the keys of wildlife conservation is, is um, it's big picture. You know, it's it doesn't always coincide with. What am I trying to say? Not animal rights, but uh, yeah, I mean, you, 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 big picture stuff because sometimes it seems like things that you do are not in the best interest of a few individuals, but they're kind of taking one for the team for the big picture. But anyway, that's another story. And I've been traveling for 15 years. You know, my first big trip, I'd say, uh, was when I was 21. I did a study abroad in Australia and I lived, a, went to UNSW, uh, University of New South Wales, lived there for like six months and um, traveled all over that country, WA and all over New Zealand and just fell in love with that part of the world. And that's actually where also I realized I wanted to do, you know, help animals on a bigger scale. Not that it's not necessarily better or whatever, but I just knew I wanted to have kind of a unique career path. And I wanted to be able to help animals um, in a big way and, and try to get a, you know, teach as many people as possible about the, you know, just educating them about animals, what that medicine's all about, and then raising awareness for wildlife conservation. Was this something that you, you always wanted to do or did this evolve later on in life? You know, I always had a good connection with animals and really appreciated them and had a lot of different kinds of pets growing up. I had some, you know, exotic uh, animal pets, nothing, not like tigers or anything like that. But, uh, you know, I had like an iguana and a, a rabbit. It's not exactly exotic and some other reptiles and some some uh, rodents and stuff. 
And, um, you know, I knew animals would be a big part of my life no matter what. There was no question about that. But it wasn't actually until I was an undergrad and I started taking some science courses and I was a business major at the time. And I just, I actually loved learning. And I, I hated school up until that point. I hated going to school. In high school, I hated it. You know, I did, I did good enough to get into a decent college and have a future ahead of me, you know, but just, just, but I just did whatever I had to do and didn't enjoy it. And then I found myself really enjoying some of these science courses. Um, actually won my senior year as well of high school. And I, yeah, after my freshman year of college, I switched my major. And for a split second, I thought maybe I want to do, you know, medicine and people. And then I was like, you know what? I love animals so much. And I love how the veterinary, you know, the veterinary profession is so versatile. You can do so much. You can do surgery. You can do, you know, wildlife. You can do kind of everything. And so that seemed like a good fit. And from there on, you know, I was about 18, 19 years old and just. The rest is history. Back. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so moving into some more wildlife questions. Uh, I see on your Instagram that you've assisted in some horn trimming of rhinos in Africa. Can you talk about what that experience was like? Yeah, it's pretty special because it sounds crazy. If you don't know what that is, we, we are trimming rhinos' horns off. Yes, we are doing that, and that's in an effort to protect them. So rhinos are poached, uh, you know, to significant, significant rates every year to the point where they're critically endangered. All species of rhino are. And um, we trim their horns because we're trying to get the horn off before the poacher can. Okay, because poachers, when they, they want horns, the horn is used for ornamental things in, in China and Southeast Asia and Vietnam, as well as, uh, you know, some people call it traditional Chinese medicine, even though I think there's some question as to whether or not it's really part of that. But it's been a part of their culture and heritage for thousands of years, unfortunately. And it's, you know, I don't want to bash on cultures because, you know, you got to respect culture and everything. But the, the thing is that cultural practice is is seriously affecting some of our most iconic wildlife in the world and they're being so destructive to africa and it's really a war out there and you know more poachers and and, and you know uh, park rangers have been killed in africa since 2001 than americans have in in the in the uh, you know, middle east war you know so it's it's a real big issue but anyways it's the most expensive commodity on the black market really you know, for animal parts maybe for anything yeah, I mean, once it leaves the the country, when it leaves South Africa, it's anywhere from twenty to forty, maybe up to sixty thousand U.S. dollar per kilogram. And every horn, if you get a whole horn, it's a few kilograms. And uh, once it makes it to its final destination, it's anywhere from one hundred twenty to two hundred thousand U.S. dollar per kilogram in when it's being sold in store in, in you know in Vietnam or China or whatnot. So it's really expensive, and and there's a big price on it, and it's a highly organized crime effort. Uh, it's not just your simple bush poaching like some of the other animals for meat or for other animal parts. This is this is pretty high-tech stuff. And so, yeah, the whole trimming the horn thing, you know, we're doing that to try to get the horn off before the uh, the poachers can. And, and a lot of people ask, you know, how's a rhino going to do without its horn? It actually does quite well. They still, adult rhinos have a lot of other adaptations that make them effective in defending themselves as an animal in Africa when there's some big mega predators like lions and hyenas and whatnot. Um, they've got a thick hide. They can still defend themselves very well. In some areas, we actually see reproductive rates go up because rhinos, they're not aggressive so much towards people or other animals typically. Black rhinos maybe uh, at times can be quite aggressive, but white rhinos, they're, they can, they're not so much with other things, but with themselves, they can fight to the death. And if they get a horn puncturing you know, their, their adversary's abdomen or their, their chest or something, I mean, that's, that's the end of that. So we, we do see repro- reproductive rates go up in some places. And um, it's an incredible experience, man. It's very quick. We literally sedate them just so we can keep them from moving around and whatnot. It's it's really it's a keratin structure, keratinous structure, just like hair, fingernails, turtle shell, chicken beak, you know, claws, stuff like that. So we're not cutting into any blood vessels or any living tissue. It's it's really 
you know, people call it dehorning, but as a veterinarian, when I say de something, that means I'm removing like a living tissue. And really, it's a trim. It's just like a nail trim, but it's on a big horn. Uh, it takes, yeah, 10, 15 minutes altogether. And you can do it with a chainsaw or a, um, this other kind of saw. Yeah. And then you grind it down with uh, like a hoof grinder, like you would on other large animal, and then mm-hmm. you wake them up. Yeah. So can you talk about what that process actually looks like from a vet point of view from start to finish? So how do you find the rhino? What happens once you find it? What does that process of trimming the horn look like? And then what happens after that? Can you kind of step through that process? Absolutely. So it's a big production. Okay. So generally I've never done it. Um, most times I've done it have involved helicopters because we're on big properties. So basically you've got a few vehicles on the ground and that's got, you know, uh, you're uh, at least a vet or a vet technician and, and, you know, some animal specialists as well as people that, you know, uh, work on that property as well as government officials. It's a very controlled thing, at least in South Africa where I've done most of my horn trimming. And then you have uh, a vet and a, a, a chopper pilot up in the sky and the bird is basically looking for the rhino that we're wanting to trim or, or a rhino that we would like to trim. They get in close. They're on contact on radio. The vet has an air-powered, CO2-powered darting rifle, and that rifle has a couple different anesthetic sedative uh, medications in it. There's different sedatives you can use, but um, there's a couple standard ones that most vets use. Anyways, they dart them. Usually, it's first starts a success, and the rhino goes down within you know five minutes, five to eight minutes. You know, if they're not slowing down by eight minutes. We have to dart them again. Okay, so that tells us the dart didn't penetrate or it hit a you know, bone or just got stuck in the skin or it went through skin, like say it's, you know, thin skin flap, like say in the armpit or something like that. It just went through and through and the drugs didn't get in the animal. It just got squared on the ground. And then when they tell us the rhino's hit, they follow it. Okay, so the rhino usually wants to run around and they're trying to get away from the helicopter still. But then eventually it starts slowing down. You see it has these, we call it a high knee gate, where it takes these big awkward steps. It's a little stumbly. And ideally by the time it's to that, the people on the ground are there. And so I've been in the helicopter, but usually I'm on the ground. And when I am, I'm with another vet tech and maybe a couple other people working on that property. And um, we literally just get as close as we can to the rhino before, you know, until we think it's not really running and moving anymore. And as soon as we can, we're trying to cover up the eyes, okay? And covering the eyes reduces stress of any wild animal, whether it's crocodiles, rhinos, deer, uh, whatever it is. It really makes a big difference. It's, it seems counterintuitive, but it helps reduce stress. Once we get the eyes covered, we help try to assist them. And this takes several people. We have you know, anywhere from you know, four to six or seven people on each side of the rhino trying to make sure it's not going to fall into a big acacia brush or uh, you know, down on a rock or on a hill or something like that. We're just trying to guide it to a, to a safe place because these animals weigh anywhere from you know, two and a half, three thousand up to, you know, five, six thousand pounds. They're huge, you know. And then uh, once we get it down, we plug the ears and we basically get straight to work and we start trimming and we're, you know, using one of our saws, usually gas or electric powered, and we're sawing off the bulk of the horn. And then we're taking like an orbital kind of grinder. Usually it's like a tungsten grinder, which is great for, you know, trimming hoofstock uh, hooves and things like that. And we're just grinding around the base and trying to shape it. And really, honestly, we're just trying to take off as much viable horn as we can before we get into living tissue. And you actually go down to the point where you can see uh, the pink living tissue underneath. We, we call it like the quick. Like if you, you know, imagine on a dog's fingernail, if you overclip a dog's fingernail, you know, it bleeds a little bit. Mm-hmm. Same kind of thing. We're trying to avoid that living tissue bed. And then once we get it all trimmed up, we basically, uh, you know, we give some medications along the way. We give an antibiotic, anti-inflammatory, anti-parasitic medication, and, uh, and, and sometimes another pain medication. 
And then we wake them up with a reversal. You know, as soon as we get them down, we do put a catheter, an intravenous catheter in the ear. So we have access to the blood supply. If we do need emergency medication, we can give it right there. And it's a faster absorption than the dart, which is intramuscular. It takes a little bit longer to absorb, but we can't give an IV injection in a moving big rhino. You know, you just have to dart it and get it in a muscle. And then we reverse it. And, and the reversal is, is phenomenal. It actually, they, they, it's, it's like a light switch goes on. You know, they go from being, you know, pretty, pretty sedate, not fully anesthetized. They're not fully anesthetized, but they're very sedate to just waking up and they stand up immediately and then casually, you know, go on their way. Sometimes they'll run off, but usually they, they'll just walk away and start eating and acting like a normal rhino. And we just had to borrow 30 minutes of their time. And now they can go back to living their wild rhino life. And they're, they're far safer from poachers than they were you know, prior to us doing that trim. And then when they're up and gone, we're out of there. And, and that's that, you know, often we'll do multiple trims a day. We'll do the whole, you know, same thing over again. Interesting. So you answered my next question. I was going to say, how long is that window from being darted and until they wake up? And it's around 30 minutes, you said. I mean, the whole process, like when we get there, yeah, maybe a little bit less. Um, we try to keep them sedated for less than 15 or 20 minutes. And so, but there's, you know, sometimes it's slow for them to go down. And usually it's pretty quick when they get up, but not always. So, but yeah, usually it's, you know, I say 30 minutes. I mean, from the initial chase of the helicopter, which they don't like helicopters. It's a foreign thing. It's weird. Most animals are neophobic, meaning anything new they're scared of because they don't know if it's safe or not. That's a very natural, Makes normal, sense. healthy instinct to have. Yeah. So yeah, from the moment the helicopter's on their tail to the, the moment they're walking away, it's rarely over 30 minutes of time. Okay. And you mentioned it's also similar to trimming your nails. When I trim my nails, it's not painful. Is it the same for the rhino? It is the same, exactly. There's no nerves. Keratin is not a living tissue. Uh, it's just like cutting hair and fingernails. It's the exact same concept behind it. There's no, there's no pain involved with it. That's why it's it's hardly even a surgery. It's really just it's a trim. We just have to sedate them to do it. Okay, so there's no pain involved. And does that horn grow back? It does, just like hair and nails. It yeah. does grow back. So every what's it? It grows like four inches. I want to say every two years. So every couple of years we try to trim these guys. We're doing regular trims on them. Okay. So as a rhino poaching mitigation strategy, from what you've experienced and the people that you've worked with, is this an effective strategy to mitigate the poaching of rhinos? It is one effective strategy. Yeah, there's others too, but this is one way to help reduce poaching. It's not a hundred percent. I mean, some poachers, you know, we think they, you know, they, They'll kill a rhino out of spite because they're like, you know, F you, you know, like you're wasting our time because we've been following these tracks all day. We, you know, we, we've been, you know, wanting to get this animal. We find out it's dehorned, you know, you know, we're just going to kill it anyways. And I think another reason they do that is because now they know there's an animal out there they don't want to waste time on because if they, they don't want to follow the same tracks again. They're like, you know what, we'll kill this one. And then if we see tracks, you know, it won't be the same one. We won't be wasting our time again. Yeah, but it helps. But there's other methods too. You know, another organization I work with called uh, the Ivan Carter Wildlife Conservation Alliance. Uh, he, he teams up with the South Africa Wildlife College. They've trained hound dogs to be anti-poaching dogs. And I actually did a trial run with them. They train every single day. They do uh, poaching, you know, test scenarios to just try to, you know, keep them exercising and keep their skills up and everything. And they can find poachers, you know, miles away, a couple miles away within a few minutes. You know, you give them one little track, one little scent track, and they, you send out a whole pack of dogs, like eight or 10 or 11 dogs, and they all go out, they work as a team, and you can hear them talking to each other, and there's a specific kind of bark 
that, that one will do to say, hey, I got a hot track. And then the, the others will kind of follow there and they'll kind of scatter. And then another one will get one. They'll follow that. And in places where those dogs have been implemented, we're seeing poaching you know, decrease by well over 90 percent because these guys are getting to poachers before the poachers can do their job and kill this rhino. And I guess it's a combination of all these strategies, right? All of these are, are needed in certain places and at, at certain times in order to try and solve this problem. Right. You know, it's not just you know, it's security, too. It's having electric fencing and having you know, people on the ground and having you know, a, a lot of different resources. So no, most places can't afford all these things. It's very expensive. A lot of the big national parks can't afford that kind of stuff. It's so expensive, even private reserves. So, yeah, that would be best best case scenario. Yeah, everybody's got security, people, hounds, helicopters, trimming, everything. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to dive in with a pretty deep question here. And the question is, to me, like I mentioned before, like I'm fairly new to this conservation space. But since working in this space, it's very easy to understand that conservation is a blinking complex beast. It's a complex problem. There's many moving parts. So in your opinion, what do you think is the root of the conservation problem? Okay. Um, I mean, I think one of the biggest issues is there's a lack of unity amongst conservationists. And a lot of people are spending too much time and resources disagreeing with how other people are doing things instead of focusing on putting their efforts into the animals. That's, that's one of the, that's not the root of it, I guess. I mean, here's what it comes down to. For, for effective, sustainable conservation, and there's a lack of sustainable conservation in many conservation efforts, there's a lack of it being sustainable and long-lasting, okay? And to have sustainable, effective conservation, you need three things, okay? Oh, hit me. You need science. So you need to have the science. You need to have ecologists and biologists and, you know, people that know how this land works and doing research and showing what matters here, what's important, why do we need to support these species, what does this mean to our land, our ecology, our wildlife, all that kind of stuff. So you need, that's super important. Number two, you need security. You have to have you have to have anti-poaching dogs. You have to have the hound dogs. You have to have electrical fences. You have to have all you know people on the ground. You have to have army rangers out there putting their lives on the line to fight against these poachers. All that stuff. You have to have security. Number three, and this one is often overlooked, and that is uh, community. Okay, mm -hmm. you have to get the surrounding community. This is the simplest way to put it. You have to get the surrounding community to be more motivated to keep this land protected and these animals alive than dead. If this community says, hey, man, I can go out and poach this animal and I can make, you know, what I make in a month doing my shit job, why wouldn't I do that? But if you say, hey, you know, if you protect this land and we have ecotourism here and we give you a sustainable job and you start doing rotational grazing with your farms and other farms and you can, you know, utilize this land and, you know, why, why give a, you know, what's it called? Why give a fisherman a fish instead of a fishing rod or whatever the hell, you know, you know, if you can you know, show them reasons as to why this is going to be more valuable for you to protect than it is for you to exploit. That's so important. And so many conservationists, um, you know, they're Western Westerners or, you know, uh, you know, new world people or whatever. And they're going out and they, they can only shell out money and do things for so long and segregate from the community for so long. And it seems like there's this vibe against this against the, you know, them against the community. And you get that vibe big time in South Africa because there's so much there's a lot of tension racially between community and black people and white people and all that. So it's very, very challenging in places like that. But when you can go places where you can successfully intertwine the two and even have some of the conservationists, you know, have individuals that really know the people that are from that area that can work with these tribes and, and, and communities and, and people and make, you know, communicate with them and make sure everything that we're, we're doing as conservationists is making them happy and how can we benefit them and how can this all play together? That's hugely important. So I think that's 
that's something that not uh, not every conservation program is is able to or has been able to uh, you know implement. Hmm. And I guess that would be considering it from a holistic point of view. I mean, I like the idea of when you're trying to convince someone to do something else, you need to present it in a way that they believe that doing this other thing will benefit them personally or benefit their family. Like it's it's addressing yeah. that selfish part of human nature. And if you can't do that, it's not going to work over time. And you got to think about perspectives because these communities, they don't look at like when I think Africa and like many, I think, fellow you know, Americans or Europeans or whatnot, we think of this iconic wildlife gem, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa. We think of Tanzania and Kenya and South Africa and all these places. We think of them as being like the mecca of wildlife. Like, you know, it's like Lion King, like you know, all that stuff. Like that's, we look at it so differently and we idolize, you know, we uh, think elephants are so amazing. But, you know, look, look at their perspective. Lions are a pain in the ass and kill their livestock. Elephants are a pain in the ass and kill their crop. You know, these are pests. These are dangerous animals. They don't have, you know, a lot of them don't have the same viewpoint. And they've been living and thinking and feeling that way long before Americans were going to Africa for holiday or doing conservation work. <laughs> so you have to you have to also, you know, keep that in mind and, you know, walk in their shoes and think about why is this bringing value to them and why is this important? Not just because, you know, tourists want to see wildlife, but how are they going to benefit from it? And I think another part of the problem is there's often like when we when we talk about killing a rhino or killing an elephant or killing any animal or anything like that, it's very emotive and people get very reactive. And like you said, this problem is just intrinsically so bloody complex. And often a solution over here isn't isn't really viable over here. And there's so many different things to consider. But we often butt heads and that just isn't really helpful. So we need to figure out how we can have these tough conversations between conservationists, but also between conservationists and the public. Like, I think that's got to be a very tricky challenge. It is. It, I mean, you, you're, you nailed it. It's not easy amongst conservationists. It's not easy amongst conservationists and communities where we're trying to protect. It's not easy against, for conservationists trying to educate the community. I mean, there's mm huge issues and you know we can talk about that too but just like you know what social media does and that kind of thing i mean it just there's a there's a lot of problems there that's my next question but i want to touch on one other thing real quick that you mentioned before yeah. is this idea that conservationists different organizations we all have the same end goal but perhaps the how that we do it differs between each other and there can be a bit of conflict but to me that seems kind of productive do you think that it is possible to solve this problem, which has got to take a lot of effort, without collaborating, without working together? Is it possible without that collaboration? It's going to be extremely difficult to do that. As long as people are motivated by money, it's going to be really tough. Because even some of the biggest, classic, most popular conservation organizations, for many of them, it really comes down to money. And... Uh, you know, for a lot, you know, if they're not getting the support that they want and these animals aren't endangered like they need them to be, it's, it's, it gets a little bit hairy and more complicated. So, you know, I hate to sound grim, but as long as people are motivated by money, you have to understand a lot of these conservation organizations, they, they're more of a business than you think. Okay. That's all I'm going to say. They're more of a for-profit business than they come off uh, as being at times. So as long as that's still, you know, in existence, it's going to be pretty tough, man. Okay, so I'm pretty big on the entrepreneurial potential for conservation. Uh, no, me too. I'm not saying that yeah, you, yeah. you know 
about a slave and you know put everything all the time and money and love and everything you have into wildlife conservation and not you know have a life for yourself because you, you're limiting yourself on how much you can do if you put everything and don't have anything to gain out of it okay so just like the communities you know you want it to be you know you want there to be some motivation i'm not saying you need to get rich off conservation but you know what i mean like it doesn't have to be like that but there are just certain things that certain organizations do that are not doing us favors and when they're asking for people's money they're essentially taking it away from the real organizations that are actually making a difference for these animals the animals that, that really need it often aren't getting the money they need because other organizations have more effective outreach and marketing strategies and celebrities and influencers and things like that where they uh, you know they, they get to they get their outreach out there more than the, the real people doing it because those other people are not as business savvy and they're they're on the ground really trying to help save these animals so that's that's that, that's kind of what it comes down to yeah so this is where marketing actually comes quite important for these organizations you could have the best strategy to solve a particular problem but you don't have any communication strategy so this isn't voice to the public and because you're primarily a not-for-profit you're relying on these donations and et cetera, et cetera. And so if the word doesn't reach the public, you don't get the support. And that's that's tricky. Yeah. They don't have good business skills. They've yeah. got big hearts. They want to help animals, but they don't, you know, they don't always have the, the means and the, the know-how to implement these other things that are going to make them more effective at the end of the day helping mm -hmm. these animals. Yeah. So I think when you mentioned those those three pillars before, I would personally include like some kind of business money pillar in there somewhere, some strategy where they can come um, less reliant on on donations and stuff like that and have some kind of financial strategy somehow. That's the sustainability part. Yeah. That allows it to be sustainable and that makes it scalable. That makes your impact scalable if you have some financial strategy. Yeah. So I think obviously not-for-profits have a place, but I think we as conservation evolves and innovates there needs to be more organizations that are for profit and then working together with the non-for-profits i think we need a mixture of, of both we can do that kind of thing and incorporate the community that's a real win because 100%. now it's sustainable and that we don't have to be there and babysitting it and funding it and everything we have it so they're you know doing their whether they're making coffee or honey or using the land or grazing or whatever or they have jobs as rangers whatever it is you know, now that's it's a self-sustaining kind of model, and it's you know they they should be put number one. I you know, agree. when it comes to these places, they they, it, they they should benefit first and foremost, and where we can help them benefit, and them benefiting us, them you know helps us, and we can help them vice versa. You know, but uh, if we can incorporate them, yeah, that's that's a win. I think another part of that particular problem is. I agree. That's that needs to be the priority is getting the community involved and like beginning at that level and then moving out from there. But that requires that's kind of a long term strategy and the return on investment, if you will, is you don't necessarily see that immediately. And I think that can be a hindrance for a lot of people. Huge. Yeah, so we need to invest our time and energy into that, knowing that later down the track we're gonna be much better off. But then there are also some issues that need immediate fixes. But the vast majority, I think, we need to approach it from, this has got to take a long time because this is bloody complex, but we'll be better off for it in the end. You know, that's a tough message to communicate to people. Then their whole lifestyle, their perspective is so different. We, we go to school. We invest time and money to get an education. And that's long-term thinking how we invest our money, all these things. These people, no, man, they live day to day. How am I going to eat today? 
how am I going to get the needs that I have for my family today? And so that mindset's very different because it's not just, you know, a need thing, but it's just, that's just how they live. Mm -hmm. I guess that needs to be addressed first. They need to survive. They need step one, the strategy needs to allow for them and their family to survive and be healthy. So yeah, yeah. When you're when, you know, answering your question, how you know what's the biggest problem with conservation? The people need to be need to need to have their needs met first. Mm-hmm. When these people's needs are met, they're going to rely on the habitat and the wildlife to uh, to get whatever they need if that's something that they can do. So mm-hmm. to feed their family or whatever it is. So mm-hmm. yeah, as as long as all the you know like the Congo for example, as long as that place is just a shit show. It's conservation is always going to be a challenge there. I mean, that place is so it's I hate this. I hate to say this, but it almost feels like a lost cause because it's so deeply. It's a huge land and there's guerrilla military everywhere. And and uh, it's just there's no way of controlling it. It's just it's it's scary and it's it's really tough. And I don't know how we're going to long term protect those areas. I have so much respect for the ranges there. We had tragedy uh, not too long ago with Virunga. Can't, don't know how to pronounce that. Virunga, Virunga National Park. Virunga, you had it. Yeah, Virunga yeah. National Park. That was that breaks your heart. Yeah, I mean that's their job. They put their lives on the line every day. They got ambushed. Yeah, and uh, lost lost a lot of good men that day. It's it's really tragic. Okay, so social media. I'm obviously consider social media. It's a double edged sword, obviously, but I see there's a lot of upside to it if we learn how to use it, learn how to manage it, and leverage it. That's the niche, niche part that I'm trying to get in, involved in. But like I said, it's a double-edged sword. So in your opinion, what do you consider to be the pros and cons of social media as a conservation tool? Well, first of all, I got to say I love your page. I love what you're doing to promote education on social media. There's, there's still such a big need for that. And there's Just. so much ignorance and so many people that don't know and so many big influencers that are putting out the wrong message. And they don't know it either. They're, I'm That's not saying the other thing. Bad. Yeah, yeah. No, these are these are not bad people. Their heart is in the right place. They do this because they, you know, find these animals cute or interesting or whatever. And, and I think they care about the, the welfare of these animals and the, the the conservation of that species in general. But yeah, I mean, I worry honestly that social media and uh, the net effect of social media is more destructive for wildlife conservation than it is than it is constructive for it. I worry that it's doing more harm than good. When you see people, you know, playing with uh, chimpanzees, playing on phones using Instagram or, or taking baths with dogs or wearing clothes or cuddling with people or, or, you know, looking like a pet, this is horrible, horrible for wildlife conservation because this is fueling the poaching of these animals. It's fueling these animals to be in shitty little zoos in China and the Middle East and other Southeast Asian countries. It's fueling them to be poached and, 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 and uh, captured from the wild as pets. And listen, just statistically, a little side note, every time a baby chimp is captured, an average of 10 chimps die trying to protect that baby. You know, they'll, they'll fight for their life. Can you say that again real quick? That deserves a repeat. Every time a baby chimp is stripped from the wild, an average of 10 chimpanzees are killed. Oh the God. parents, the siblings, the aunties, uncles, grandparents. Dude, it's just like people. Mm. Okay, so if, if some other species comes and tries to take our baby, we're going we're gonna to fucking fight to the death to prevent that. Unfortunately, these poachers, They've got rifles and they've got weapons and they're, they're, they're going to get killed and they do. I mean, sometimes it's over 20 chimps, you know, it's not uncommon. So an average of 10 and chimps are a very hardy species, but they are kept in such poor conditions that by the time these baby chimps get to, say, China, okay, 80 to 90 percent of those do not survive. And this is a hardy primate species. You can really punish them 
and they'll still live. So to say that eight or nine out of 10 of them die, that tells you their conditions are such, such shit. And so my point is, at the end of the day, when you see a chimp, and it's it's some shitty zoo in China, or, or a pet in Syria, or whatever, an average of 100 chimpanzees have died for that chimp to get there. Chimps are critically endangered, okay? Not many people know that. And they see them in, you know, on social media or as pets or cuddling or hotel rooms or whatever. And they think, you know, that just seeing that actually skews people's perception on whether or not they're endangered, unfortunately. They think, oh, they, you know, if they're here, they, it's, it's a weird thing. There was a study actually done about this that people, when they saw chimps in captivity versus in the wild, they assume that these, when they see a chimp in captivity, that they're doing better from a conservation perspective. Anyways, that's not doing any favors. Um, you know, you see things like, you know, Tiger King was a huge topic, still probably is, and things like cub petting. Oh, this is not doing any favors. These cup-petting places are absolute for-business, for-profit places, doing nothing for conservation. They have to breed and have tiger cubs available during most of the year. They can't keep all these tigers. They don't have the space or the resources or the means, so they're sold to other city, shitty zoos, sometimes internationally, to even worse places in Thailand and China. And it's a horrible industry. They're, they're not living their best life. They're usually in poor captive condition, and it's a really sad thing. And so, you know, but but you have massive influencers you know, with 10 million something followers, give or take, and they're cuddling a little baby tiger or a lion or whatever. And so, and, and then you have the, all their followers and these people, they go on Instagram to be entertained. They're not going, they're not, you know, they don't know anything about wildlife. They think, oh my God, that's so cute. And they like it, they share it, they repost it, blah, blah, blah. And it just gets so much outreach. And it's, it's not doing those individual animals or that species as a whole any favors. That's that's something that I try to educate people with. And I, you know, I don't have as big a following as some of these other people, but I can at least get some word out there and try to educate some people that, uh, that, you know, how problematic this is. And I work with these conservationists. I work with, you know, chimp people on the front line. And do we I've, I've seen that ugly world. And like, it's it's really sad. And it's it's not something, you know, most people dude, when you like that stuff and you see it, you're not a bad person. You don't know that you're doing chimpanzees as a species and, and that individual disservice you don't know that mm -hmm. you know and that's something that's just not knowledge and that's just something we got to get out there you know and then you have those other conservation organizations that you know use their funds for this or that and they have better outreach in business and uh they get so much more money and it's not going to the animals that need it and that's honestly those guys are just as bad as is is the people paying poachers to go kill rhino they're worse than the actual poachers the poachers are desperate they need money the people paying them are pieces of shit and they they're just in it for the money and they don't they you know they're, they're doing horrible things but when you're pretending to to take money to help an animal and your money's going to some you know something that's not really doing a whole lot i don't think you're any better than anybody else out there and this is a massive issue and something that i do i personally want to make a bigger message of as i can get a bigger outreach over mm. time and kind of start you know raising attention to this because i think that is a massive problem and if all the money 100%. that went to these places was going to the right places, we'd actually see some bigger, better changes. I 100 percent agree. And one thing I worry about with social media, because these animal influences are popping up and they're growing pretty rapidly because Instagram is a visual platform. And these are things that people haven't seen before. And you get animal lovers who haven't seen that before are unfamiliar with the consequences and they like it. Like my mom sent me a video of someone um, swimming with a, a pet tiger and I had to tell her like this, this is from a place that probably isn't doing the right thing but she's obviously a good person blah 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 and I think this is common for a lot of the followers of these people and I think even the animal influencers themselves some of them like the ones that you're talking about who paint themselves as being some kind of conservational organization they receive donations but they don't actually go to the right causes the other ones 
perhaps they're just completely ignorant. Like, who knows? Like, um, maybe they are animal lovers and they just are unaware of that link between, you know, showering a chimpanzee and then that fueling the pet trade, uh, the illegal pet trade, and then that chimpanzee getting poached in, in, the, in the jungle in, in Africa. Influencers that aren't calling themselves conservationists, they're just like, they just like animals and they thought it'd be cool to post and share their experience with a tiger cub. I, they, they're not the bad people. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's the people that are posing as conservationists, using funds for, you know, that aren't really going to the animals that really, really need it. I think that's just as bad as anybody doing a disservice to wildlife. You might as well be a cub petter in my book. You know, that's just bullshit. It's just a different version. And the thing is, a lot of these, I know the ones that you're referring to, I think. And one of them that I know, they say that they, a lot of the money that they raise goes to helping chimpanzee conservation. But the thing is, their work and the activity on social media is fueling that trade. So the money that you're donating to is trying to solve a problem that you're fueling. So there's, it just doesn't make any sense and it's it is a scam like you're you're taking advantage of people's love for animals and their desire to try and help them in in any way that they can and that's displacing the money from a, a legitimate conservation organization i mean i think people divide that when we do our tiger petting or whatever we can we're using we're raising so much money for conservation and there's there's I mean, they are raising some, and I don't know 100% where it's going. But, I mean, listen, man, at the end of the day, there's no way that what the, the good that they're doing has come even close to rectifying the bad that they're doing, you know. So, it's, I mean, they're, they're a business, and they're invested in it. They've been doing this for maybe for years, maybe for their whole life. And so, you know, it's, it's you know, I, I'm not, I don't agree with it whatsoever, but I, I can understand the complications and the challenges of saying, hey, man, you know, shut your tiger petting <laughs> facility up you know, figure it out and, and do something else to your life because this is all you know, it's all you've ever done and we're telling you it's wrong. So I, I'm not saying that they should keep it going. I don't think they should, but I do understand the hurdles of it. But it's just a matter of, you know, what, what, what do you have to do to sleep at night or what can you do to, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's more complex just being like, stop doing that, that's bad. Like that's, and you, you see on social media, a lot of people comment on these posts and they're like, they say exactly that and, that just isn't actually helping uh, unless you're creating a back and forth conversation with people and, and stuff like that. Uh, there is more to it, but it's worth talking about, in my opinion, because social media is growing. It's not going to slow down. And animals are good props that can be taken advantage of and uh, leveraged for the wrong reasons on social media. So we need to 100% agree we need to crack down on that somehow. It's going to be tough, but we need to crack down. Every cause has people that exploit it for the business perspective. Yeah. Every cause. Yeah, 100%. You know, whether it's, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, I know more from the animal world because that's my world. That's what I know. That's who I work with. But any, you know, major problem in the world, there's organizations that are like, we can make some money here. We can make some money. And that's, you know, that's, 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 what, the, that's what a challenge is for people to decipher from, from when they decide they want to help and donate somewhere. So something else I do is I always, you know, if I say, hey, you want to donate to this place, this is a place I've worked with these people personally. I've seen what they do in Africa or Asia or South America or whatever. Like I know firsthand that you are donating to a place that is really making a difference to help animals and wildlife conservation. So, um, yeah, but it's, it's tough to navigate that world. Even for me, it's tough to navigate that world. And I'm so much more immersed in it than most people. But if it's like a species or habitat I'm not as familiar with, I sometimes need some guidance on, on, on how to, you know, how to figure out what's, what's good or not because these not as good places are so good at looking good you know <laughs> it's, yeah it's a challenge 
So as we all know, the world is in a global pandemic at the moment with COVID-19. So in terms of coronavirus and pets, what are some things that pet owners should be aware of when it comes to the coronavirus? Yeah, and I'm glad you bring that up because there's so many misconceptions and so much confusion about that. So I mean, the biggest thing, if I'm going to say one thing, it's your pet should be more concerned about you giving it to them than them giving it to you. Okay. Humans are by far a more effective carrier and transmitter of that virus than any animals that we know of so far. Uh, Certain pets are more prone to getting it and getting sick from it. And that's particularly ferrets is more so than any other common pets that we know of. And then cats, dogs, we haven't seen many dogs get sick with it, maybe one or two, but Overall, dogs don't seem to be getting sick. There's no evidence of any animals giving it to people, you know, uh, pets giving it to people. You know, we, we theorize that there's bats, maybe pangolins, maybe some other wildlife vectors, of course. But in terms of our pets giving it to us, that's not what your concern should be. And if your pet is positive for corona, it's because you or somebody else in your household gave it to them. And if you're concerned, you know, consult your veterinarian and they can discuss on how to how to look into that further. The test for animals is different than people. And if you do, if you're positive and you have a cat or, a, you know, a ferret, especially do your very best that you can to social distance. If there's other people at home that you can social distance from them and they can take care of the animals. Don't cuddle with them. Don't directly feed them, you know, with your hands and that kind of thing. Try to keep a distance with everything and just be intelligent, just like you're social distancing with people. Um, I would recommend just to be on the safe side, avoiding, you know, public settings where your dogs are going to interact with other animals or people because technically they can get it and carry it. We don't know for sure if they can spread it. So I just say be on the safe side. So avoid the dog parks and stuff like that. And, you know, just be smart. Just use common sense. But listen, don't 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 relinquish your pet because you're worried about them giving you Corona because they're not going to unless you, you know, you, they're, they're only going to get it because you're going to get it. You know what I mean? So the issue is more you giving it to them. And when you said social distancing, you're meaning social distancing from you and your pets potentially. Exactly. That's an interesting point. Yeah. So I I don't know if there's much conversation around that, but I think it's an important point to, yeah, I guess talk about because we love our pets and we often probably forget that these things that are happening right now could affect them as well. It's one of those few things. It's called a zoonotic disease, meaning a disease that can spread from an animal to people. Okay, so now for today's podcast question winner, which I did last week. This is my first time doing it. Uh, the question winner is Alon, whose Instagram handle is at Alon underscore Mekin. So at A-L-O-N underscore M-E-K-I-N. And his question is good because I think it's applicable to a lot of people. And his question is, what are your views on free roaming domestic cats and the threat they pose to wildlife? Great question. Um, I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. I don't like having free roaming cats. You know, they are, you know, doing the work that I've done with wildlife conservation, you see how destructive cats are. And, you know, you, you live in Australia. You live in a place where cats have absolutely demolished wildlife every single day. And not just Australia, but other South Pacific islands, even in the New World, in the Caribbean, even in the States. I mean, they decimate what, you know, I would estimated like something like 17 million wild animals a day around the world, something like that. So they're a huge problem with wildlife. And there's such a, you know, the cats, they weren't domesticated in the same way as some of our other domesticated animals, like dogs, for example. It was more of a passive domestication. Dogs, you know, up until a few decades or maybe a couple centuries ago, cats weren't really bred to be a functional pet like dogs, whether it's to hunt varmint or to be, you know, a security kind of animal or whatnot. Cats were more just, you know, they saw opportunity in living in and around people because, uh, you know, when they people were cooking and had kitchens, they would have mice and they'd like to have the cats around and the cats would take care of some of those vermin and stuff like that. But my point being is they've retained so many of their wild characteristics. 
and they're still very effective hunters. They're very stealthy. They're very smart. They've got claws. They've got teeth, and they're very effective hunters. In most of the places where these little house cats are, you know, just destroying wildlife, this wildlife hasn't evolved the adaptations required to protect themselves better against these predators. Okay, they, they're not. It's just like the Burmese python in Florida. These animals aren't equipped with that kind of defense to be able to protect themselves as they are for other predators that are also native. Uh, to that area that they've, you know, lived with for thousands or more years, you know. So, yeah, it's a big problem. They kill a lot of wildlife. And honestly, you know, when it comes to, you know, even if you don't care about the wildlife, you know, it's too bad. But if you just care about your cat, listen, there's a lot of risks for your cat. You know, they sometimes when they get in a scuffle with wildlife, it doesn't turn out so good for them. They might get in a fight with another cat. They might get in a fight with a dog. They might get hit by a car. They could get infectious disease like viruses like, you know, feline uh, uh, influenza virus or, or herpes virus or um, leukemia virus. And, uh, you know, there's parasites out there, too. So there's a lot of real risks that you're taking by letting your cat outside. So it's just I just can't recommend it in, in any sense, you know. And, and honestly, another huge one is overbreeding and overpopulating. And these cats, these kittens, you know, they're, they live a, a short life of suffering, many of them, because they don't get the resources and things that they need to survive where they're uh, where they're ending up, you know. And it's just it's they're living on the streets and they live a shit life and they die young. And it's, you know, it's just this. Uh, unnecessary suffering because of uncontrolled breeding and stuff like that if if your cat is uh is intact you know okay so in terms of some takeaways then i guess keep your cat at home and there's there's a couple of reasons for that so one you mentioned is the wildlife that could be killed by these cats when they're roaming at night and another one is actually for the health and safety of the cat themselves and then a third one is overbreeding and we have a surplus of kittens and their quality of life perhaps could be decreased because of this overpopulation. Is that pretty much in a nutshell, the consequences? Yeah, I mean, simple, straightforward ways to just kind of put it together. So yeah, I'm sorry I went in detail there, but I just want to make it clear and you know help people understand why it is hugely problematic around the world. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you give to an aspiring uh, vet student? Oh, actually, we probably don't have time for that. I probably would want to talk about your book and how people can connect with you and then finish with what message do you have? That's probably all the time that we have. I mean, the book is, uh, is called World Wild Vet. We're not, I'm, not, I'm not releasing it. We, we're not releasing it until October. So I'll talk more about that as the time comes. But very excited. It's a, basically a collection of stories throughout my evolution from wildlife enthusiast, 20-year-old to you know, uh, you know, we're veterinarian working with wildlife, doing wildlife conservation, traveling, whatnot around the world. It's an easy read. It's fun. It's got fun stories, sad stories, crazy stories, just, just, just really cool stuff that I've gotten to do over the years. And then, I mean, real quick to answer that last question, if you do want to be a vet, listen, just, just immerse, you know, go work with other animal professionals. I mean, even just volunteer, just see what that feels like. See if that's really something for you. Take school super seriously, get good grades. It's, it's generally competitive to get into a veterinary program. Not as much these days as it was. That's another story. But, you know, my best advice is just kick butt and get good experience and have a good, you know, uh, diversity of experience, whether it's some research, large animals, small animal, wildlife, whatnot, depending on what you want to do. And then my message in general is, you know, I think a big part of our conversation today was talking about social media. And my message, you know, I guess would be social media is entertaining and we go on there to have fun. But, and I hate to say this, but it's just the reality of the world we live in today. You need to be responsible when you go on social media. You need to use it and enjoy it responsibly. And just think about the consequences of what you're doing. When you do see something, it maybe does feel a little strange. It's a little weird seeing a tiger become being pet. It's a little weird seeing a chimpanzee in a bath with a dog. It's just, it's just something I really want to support. And just think twice about that stuff. 
And if you do want to help out, uh, you know, my, my advice is to, you know, do some research. Look at Cherry Navigator, Charity Navigator. Look at something. You know, follow somebody like me or, or another wildlife conservationist that does good work and see what organizations they're working with before you just start throwing your money at places that might be doing it more for business than for the actual animals. But just be smart on social media. It's, it's um, you know, I, I go on Instagram to be entertained, too. I'm like everybody else. It's fun to me. But uh, unfortunately, the reality of the situation is these days we have to be responsible about it. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.